Today we uh, will continue in the new series that we started last week, The Untold Stories of Christmas. Uh, last week uh, was a war story, and today a political story. Uh, we probably all know the, the Christmas story uh, and, and all the, the, the things that happen as we read God's Word in the birth of Jesus, but, but maybe there's ways of looking at and understanding the Christmas story that we've never thought of. Uh, and so in this series, we're looking at the untold stories of Christmas. And today, we're going to see that there is an untold political story to Christmas. Now, if, if you're any, anything like me, when you think political, you might have noticed that there's a little bit of politics in the news these days for the last, uh, I don't know, forever. Um, and it's even uh, more intense right now. Uh, when we think of, of politics or political, it's a word that, that brings a bunch of excessive baggage, and all of it seems to be negative, especially these days. Um, <clears throat> I heard someone say that, uh, that you can always tell what a word means by breaking the word down. So let's, let's do that with politics, okay? Uh, you got the prefix poly, which means uh, many, and you've got the root word ticks, which is a, a blood-sucking insect. <laughs> uh, and, and we've all heard jokes about politicians. Uh, this pretty much the same thing as lawyer jokes, right? But, but you can just plug in politics uh, or politicians. Like the one about the bus that, that was full of politicians that just went over the cliff and crashed and everybody died. Uh, that was the good news, right? The bad news was there was a few empty seats so, uh, but today we're, we're not using the word politics uh, in the sense that we think of it in, as Republican and Democrat, uh, um, many blood-sucking creatures kind of way. We're going to look at it uh, in, a, in a godly way, in a God-politics way. Last week we looked at Christmas uh, as a war story, and we, we did a little history lesson uh, on D-Day and World War II, and we sort of compared um, the coming of Jesus to, to that of D-Day uh, when it came to the war on sin. This week will, will be a quick mini-lesson on sociology. Now, sociologists talk about the, the three Ps of societal politics. Politics is really about the distribution of power, privilege, and prestige. Politics is about how a person or a group of people divide up the pie of power, privilege, and prestige. And then you bring economics into the picture, and you have a fourth P, possessions. You know, they say politics can be boiled down to the golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Somewhat true. Well, in a sense, Christmas is a political story. And it gives us God's political platform. The Christmas story is the untold story of the politics of God. And when you understand God's politics, you understand a lot about God. Let's read uh, part of the Christmas story that we find in Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 15. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. 
But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Now, let's think through this story that we just read. <clears throat> And see if we can't find God's politics there. Now, for those of you who uh, have had babies, and we would like to, first of all, welcome uh, Julian Beard to our church family. Uh, Zach and, and Meredith uh, gave birth to a, a, a healthy son, Julian, and, and we're, we can't wait to, to meet him. But uh, let's give praise for that. And for those of us who have been through that, uh, as they have the, just a few days ago, um, who have had babies. Who were the first people that you called on your way to the hospital or uh, right after the baby was born? Who was the first person that you called or people that you called? Usually it's, it's someone that's really important to you, right? When Jack and I were uh, stationed at Injurlik Air Base, Turkey, uh, back in 1980 through 82, um, there was no internet, there was no texting, no cell phones, uh, no email. I, I, I don't know if those things existed then, but we certainly didn't have them. Um, there was just old-fashioned landline telephones and the post office. That's how you communicated back home. Um, if you wanted to call somebody, uh, you couldn't just pick up the phone and call them. You had to get what was called a morale call control number. Uh, from your unit, and you had to do that ahead of time, uh, and then when you made your call, you had five minutes to talk, and the operator would cut you off if after your five minutes was over, no matter what. <clears throat> so you had everything you had to say, you had to say in five minutes. So when our son Chris was born uh, at the Injurlik Hospital there <clears throat> in January 17, 1982, we could not immediately call the people we wanted to call, our parents. Uh, first of all, it was about two weeks early. His birth was two weeks early, so we weren't really prepared. <clears throat> we didn't have time to get a control number. Uh, and uh, uh, all of our parents were and family were back home and waiting to see when the baby was coming. They'd, it was before we had the uh, ultrasound. They, they didn't have an ultrasound at that time on the base, so we didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. Uh, so everybody was waiting to see if it's a boy or a girl, if, if mom and baby were healthy. Uh, but it wasn't possible to call them after the baby was born. Now, we announced the news to our, our Air Force friends that were there uh, at the time, but, but that's not who we wanted to make the announcement to. Now, we wanted to tell our parents first, uh, and then our grandparents, and, and then our siblings because we wanted people who were closest to us to be the first ones to hear the good news of, of Chris's arrival. Uh, now, we were eventually able to call everybody, uh, but it was delayed. It wasn't immediately after. And even when we did get to tell them uh, about Chris, they were not able to come and see him like 
most people can because they were thousands of miles away. Chris was almost a year old before his grandparents finally got to see him. So think about this. Who does God announce the birth of his son to? Who does he call and say, hey, the baby's here. Come and see. Come and see. Well, there's only one announcement of Christ's birth recorded in the Bible. Only one invitation given the night he was born uh, for anyone to come and see the baby. And that one invitation goes to who? Shepherds. Shepherds. Now, now we can sometimes be sentimental about shepherds in the Christmas story. We think of, you know, they're just guys that like to be outside and they sit under the stars and they they love their sheep and, and, uh, you know, they're they're good people. Uh, But in those days, uh, shepherds meant undereducated, smelly, low-class, socially marginalized, religiously looked down upon nobodies. And here's why. According to Jewish religious law, to be acceptable to God, you had to do certain religious things to be considered clean or kosher. Shepherds, by profession, couldn't do those things on a regular basis. Their line of work prevented them from participating in feasts and holy days uh, because they, the, the, the different things that made up the Jewish calendar that all Jews were required to participate in because somebody had to always be watching the sheep and they didn't have three different shifts to come in and do that. When, when everybody else was making a trip to Jerusalem to make the required sacrifices at the temple or to participate in one of the annual feasts, shepherds were always where they were, were always on the job watching sheep. And so shepherds were not considered acceptable, especially in, uh, in regards to religion. And, and they were social outcasts as well. Since they were constantly on the move to find new pasture for their flocks, they were, they were looked upon with suspicion. You know, kind of the way that people might uh, look at carnival workers today. Always on the move, never in one place very long. If something got stolen, hey, blame the shepherds. Uh, if something came up missing, must have been the shepherds that took it. In fact, shepherds were not permitted to give testimony in a court of law because their word was considered unreliable. Now, step back for a moment. Imagine you're God, and you're going to announce the most amazing, incredible, joyous, significant news events in the the history of mankind, in the history of the universe— You're going to invite someone to come and see the baby. Who are you going to choose? Who are you going to choose? The most important people, right? Those with power, with privilege, with prestige. In 1960, just uh, 17 days after being elected president, John Kennedy and his wife Jackie gave birth to a son, John Kennedy Jr., I I, I bet the first announcement of John Jr.'s birth did not go to the custodial staff of the hospital or the cab drivers of Washington, D.C. Instead, after their wealthy parents were told, uh, I'm sure it was to political leaders and foreign heads of state 
that the announcement was made to. So, so who are the people to whom God chooses to announce the birth of his son? Shepherds. Shepherds. The poor, stinky, irreligious, outcast shepherds got the news first of this great event from angels. From angels. Can you imagine the, the conductor of the, of the angel choir telling uh, his team, hey guys, we got a major gig tonight. Let's get ready. We're going to announce the birth of the Messiah, of Jesus, to a select audience handpicked by God. And the angels probably ask, well, who, who is it? Who is it? Well, they're shepherds. <laughs> what? What? We're going to sing to a bunch of shepherds? So, think about the politics of that. What does picking the shepherds to be the ones to be the first to hear and to see the Messiah, the baby, what does that tell us about God? It's not very politically correct of him, is it? And this untold story of Christmas and God's politics gets even more politically incorrect because the only other group somehow let in on this event are the wise men. You know, the, the southern firefighters from the east? You, you've heard they, were, they came from afar. <laughs> Corny joke, I know. Uh, no, they weren't firefighters. Uh, but they also were not Jewish. Uh, which is, is very significant to the politics of God. Uh, Magi, as they are called, followed the star until they arrived uh, to see Joseph, Mary, and their new son, Jesus. Now, today we think of that as a, a beautiful scene, like this scene on the screen back here, a, a beautiful part of, of the Christmas story. But, you know, for the proud Jewish people, it was like a slap in the face that Jesus called them to come see Jesus. Why? Why? Well, because the wise men from the east were definitely political outsiders, and, and this was a huge political statement by God to invite them. Now, back then, the world was viewed as having two kinds of people, two kinds of people, those who were Jewish and those who were not Jewish, Gentiles. Now, this was the fundamental political line of human value among many in the Jewish community. This is where human value was measured. God had called the Jewish people to be his special representatives of him to the world, his ambassadors to the world. But the Jewish people had taken this very special role that God had given them and made it a matter of political and personal pride we're special we alone are God's people he doesn't even care about anybody else he only cares about us now, they turned their special place in God's plan of reaching out uh, to to everyone into reason to look down on everyone that wasn't like them in fact, it had gotten so bad by the time of Jesus' birth that the Jews simply referred to Gentiles as 
dogs. And dogs were, were not cherished like they are today. Dogs were, were pests that just got in your way back in those days. That wasn't a complimentary thing at all. That's what these wise men were. They were the philosophers, the astrologers from a faraway land, most likely Persia, and they were not Jewish. They were Gentile dogs. They were not God's people. Now, step back from this one for a moment. Again, imagine you're God. You announce the birth of your son to the shepherds, uh, but you're, you're going to allow one other group to crash this birth party. And it's not Jewish people. Uh, you're going to allow some Gentiles, the dogs. Now, what does allowing the wise men from the east into the party tell us about God, about his politics? And we haven't even talked about the ultimate political statement in the Christmas story, Jesus' mother, Mary. Now, most of us have grown up very eager to honor and respect Mary. Uh, but, but the truth is, at that time, Mary was far from being respected. You know, if, if you were to pass Mary uh, walking down the street and, and you would see an unmarried teenage girl, you know, she's engaged to an older guy, a, a carpenter named Joseph, and you discover that everyone in town thinks Joseph is not a stand-up kind of guy, or that Mary is a, a you-know-what kind of girl, because when she became pregnant, Joseph decided to call off the engagement. You know, Joseph no longer wanted to have Mary as his wife. And, and even, even before she got pregnant, Mary was just an ordinary woman, young woman. And women in those days in that culture, had very little power, privilege, and prestige. You know, we've gotten so used to the story uh, that we don't think it's strange, as we think of it today, that God chose Mary. But you know what? She thought it was strange that she was chosen. Let's read Luke chapter 1, verse 28 through 34. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? Now, step back from this one. God could have brought his son to earth any way that he wanted to. Any way that he wanted to. He could have had Jesus born to a king and queen. And he would have been born a prince with an empire uh, to inherit. Or, or, or at least he could have been born to some nice suburban couple with a, with a big SUV and, and respect in the community. But what did God choose? He chose an unmarried teenage girl to give birth, essentially in a garage out behind the Bethlehem Motel 6. 
And by the way, Bethlehem was about as powerful, privileged, and prestigious a place to be from as, I don't know, Cresswell, my hometown. So, so what does picking no power, no privilege, no prestige Mary tell us about God and his politics? Mary's response to the angel tells us a lot about God, a lot about his politics. Let's look at what she said, Luke 1, verse 46 through 48, and then verse 50 through 53. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. That's the politics of God. Now, don't misunderstand what, what is saying is being said here. This doesn't mean that, that someone is automatically more noble, more godly, just because they're poor. Just because they're poor. But it does mean that God is not like us. Doesn't think like us. God is not impressed with those who seem to have power. Uh, the, the privilege, the the, the prestigious, those with power, those with possessions. God is not impressed with those who are impressed with themselves. And God is especially not impressed with people who use whatever power, privilege, uh, prestige, possessions simply for themselves. God's politics is upside down from the politics of the world. And that's why Jesus said, whoever is first will be last, and whoever is last will be first. And, and, and God is not talk, Jesus is not talking about the amount of money you have. You know, he's not saying that the richest people, they're going to be in trouble, and, and the poor people, they're, they're going to be the ones that are rewarded just because they're poor. No, the scale that Jesus is talking about is not so much financial. He's, he's referring to those who are proud versus those who are humble. In fact, the Bible specifically says in the book of James, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God loves everybody, even the proud. He loves everybody. But he opposes, he works against the proud. Those who feel self-made, you know, I, I'm responsible for my, myself. I did all this. It was all me. God works against the proud. God loves everybody, but he opposes the proud. Those who are always looking out for number one. When people take all the, the prosperity and possessions and power God's blessed them with, and they only use it for themselves. You know, that ticks God off when we do that. 
He still loves us. He still loves that person. But he will work against them. That's what James tells us. They may seem to be in first right now, but they will end up last because God opposes the proud. But God gives grace to the humble. God is on the side of. God protects and comes to the rescue of those who rely on and give Him the glory. Those who don't have prosperity or possession or power or prestige. Or those who maybe have it, but they use it to bless others. They they may seem to, to be in last now, but they will end up first. Because God gives grace to the humble. Christmas has an untold political story. And it turns out that God's politics are just totally upside down from our our politics and the world's politics. So, what does all that mean to you and me? Uh, For not only how we approach Christmas, but how we approach life, how we do life. What does all this mean for us? Well, first, it means if we want to be people who follow Jesus and become like God, we need to stop looking at people the way the world looks at them. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 6, 16, verse 7, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 2 Corinthians 5, 16, Paul wrote, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And John 7, 24, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. When people look at the world, what do they see? They see the color of our skin. They see the kind of car that you're driving. They see the size of your house. They see the the quality of the clothing that you wear. They see the power, the prestige, the privilege, the possessions that people have. But God doesn't look at people that way. And neither should we. Neither should we. This is why God chose Mary to give birth to the Son of God. Uh, This is why he chose the wise men from the east to crash the birth party. Uh, This is why when God scanned the landscape, to select who he would make his first birth announcement to. He chose shepherds. And we need to look for the shepherds in our lives. Who are the looked down on, the the unacceptable, the outcasts in our life? Who sits alone at church fellowship meals? Uh, who, Who at your work, perhaps doesn't quite have the social skills to develop good friends who in your neighborhood is lonely we tend to become friends with and with and treat people better who are a little more handsome a little more beautiful uh, who have a little more money uh, a, a little bigger house, who have the power to lift up uh, us up to a higher place, either uh, socially or, or in our job. Uh, but that's the politics of the world. God says, don't look to be lifted up by those who are considered better than. 
but rather in stoop down to those considered less than. Stop looking at people the way the world looks at them. God looked for and chose shepherds. And we need to look for and choose the shepherds in our life. Second, we need to not just find those shepherds and, and look at them differently. We need to treat them differently as well. You know, I, I, need, to, I need to put love in action. I need to serve. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 7 says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. You know, we have, you know, we have to serve people. We have to look out for people, especially those who can't look out for themselves very well. Last week we talked about how so many people, uh, you know, think, that they're, they can be saved by their good works. You know, uh, you know I, 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 I think I'm going to go to heaven because the good things I do outweigh the bad things. I'm a pretty decent guy. I'm a pretty decent guy. I've never done anything terrible. I'm a nice person. I give to charity. I'm a member of the PTA. I helped that guy who was broken down the other day. I let him use my cell phone. <laughs> you know, a lot of people think they're saved by the good works, the good things that they do. But the truth is, you cannot be saved by your good works. There's, there's no amount of good works that can overcome even one sin in our life. You can't, you can't be saved by your good works. You can be saved, though, but only because of God's love for us and by what Jesus did for us on the cross when we put our faith in him. You're not saved by good works. But if you become a Christian, you are saved for good works. Ephesians 2, 8 and through 10 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, it, it says that we're saved by grace, which means that's the opposite of something we deserve. We're getting something we don't deserve, God's grace. And it wasn't because of anything that we did. We're, we're not saved by our good works. We're saved by God's grace. But then it says that we are saved to do good works. A lot of people outside the church who aren't Christians think, you know, works are, are what's important. Contributing to charity, just doing kind deeds, that's what's really important. And so I'm going to be saved by the good things that I do in my life. Then a lot of people inside the church, Christians, think, well, you know, good works are really not that important. You know, they're not important because I know that I'm not saved by my good deeds. Uh, I'm saved by God's grace through my faith. Well, both of those uh, are incorrect ways of thinking. Uh, because you are saved by your faith, not your good works, for good works. 
You're saved by faith to do good in Jesus' name. In fact, this passage says that, that God has prepared in advance good things for you and me as Christians to do for him. Uh, to do. And how do, how do we do good things for him? We, we do good things by reaching out to people around us who are in need, especially the shepherds in our life. Listen to what the Bible says about his people about the people who believe in God uh, and people that you find in church. Now, this is a, a long passage from Isaiah chapter 58, verse 2 through 11. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to, to turn to that. Isaiah 58, 2 through 11. Uh, and, and just listen to this passage as I read it. It'll be on the screen also. But listen to um, the difference between what people think God wants and what God actually wants from us. Isaiah 58, 2 through 11. For day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near, me, near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To lose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing of finger and malicious talk, if you spend yourselves in, in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. God is saying here uh, in Isaiah, I can't believe my people. They seek me. They want to know my ways. They're so eager to be close to me and for me to be close to them, they fast and they pray. 
but they don't feed the hungry. They don't give shelter to the homeless. They don't clothe the naked. They don't care about the injustice, injustices being done. They love me, they say, but they don't really love people. And they especially don't love oppressed people. The down and out people look down on people, the outcasts, the shepherds in their lives. How can they love me and want my direction in life and not understand my politics? Not understand my heart for the shepherds, the wise men, the Gentile dogs, and the pregnant teenage girl. Well, until they do, I will not be found by them. I will not come close. I will not answer their prayers. But when they do, I will guide them and satisfy them. Until they do, they'll wonder why they're not growing spiritually and why they're not being spiritually fed. But when they do, they'll understand that the path to growth, the way to be fed spiritually is to serve and care for those who cannot care for themselves. You know, if, if you're not yet a Christian this morning, you know, you can do good things, and, and, and they're helpful to those that you do them to. You can do good things, but don't fool yourself into thinking that that, that alone is going to please God, just doing good things, and that you're going to be okay with Him. Um, uh, by what you're doing. If you are a Christian, it's great that you believe and you have strong faith, uh, but don't fool yourself into thinking that you're going to please God without good works and that you can live the Christian life without serving and without caring for those who are looked down upon in our society. We need to make a decision today that we're going to use whatever power, whatever privilege, whatever prestige, our possessions that we have, not just for ourselves, but to bless others. That we will use our life to look out for others, especially those who are in need. And we're, going to, we're not going to wait for just the big glorious opportunities to do it. We're going to be a servant every day, every moment of our life and every opportunity that we have. And if we do that, something is going to happen to us. Something's going to grow in our lives. And, and it might be, but it shouldn't be, our head. <laughs> Some people start serving God and, and really making a difference, and it can lead to, to a feeling of, hey, this is about me. Ooh, look at all the praise I'm getting for all the good things I'm doing. And we need to remember, no, this is not about us when we're serving God, when we're serving others. You know, when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem um, just a few days before he was crucified, he rode in on a donkey. And there was this huge parade, there was this huge crowd just cheering him on as he rode the donkey down the street. People were shouting and worshiping. And you can imagine that maybe the donkey thought, wow, all this for me. I'm, I'm pretty special, I guess. Yeah, that'd be silly, wouldn't it? Because it wasn't about the donkey. No, 
He was just lifting up Jesus. And when we start doing great things for God, sometimes there can be a lot of noise that can come from it, maybe some praise. But it's not about us. Let's remember, we're just lifting up Jesus as we serve. The other thing that could but should grow is our heart. Our heart. We, we may know the story of the Grinch that stole Christmas. Uh, it's a fun story at Christmas time. And at, at the end of the story, uh, it, it tells us that his heart grew three sizes that day. You know, his capacity to love and have compassion grew because there at the end of the story, the Grinch started looking at other people differently than he had before. Because he took the focus off of himself and he put it on others. He thought about uh, how he could give to them rather than take them. How he could bless them rather than use them. And so his heart grew three, th three sizes that day. And, you know, and that's what God wants from you and me this Christmas. And that's what he wants from you and me every day in our life. He wants our hearts to grow. He wants us to understand and really live out what it means to love God and to love people. And to do that, we need to look at people differently than the world and treat them differently. And to do that, we need to understand Jesus' birth and the untold political story of Jesus, of Christmas. Father, I thank you so much for uh, this untold political story of Christmas uh, that maybe we don't think about sometimes. Uh, think about uh, while today it just seems like the normal, uh, beautiful, uh, romantic picture of Mary and Joseph in the manger and the shepherds and the wise men. Um, but when we really go back to that first century and, and the way people thought about it then, we can see that uh, God had it all mixed up. Uh, he, he, he didn't, according to the world, look at it the way the people thought he should have. But we, we understand that, of course, God saw it the right way. Uh, he, he cares about the oppressed. He cares about the poor. He cares about the hurting. Um, and he uh, lifts up the humble and works against the proud. And so, Lord, help us to, to, to take this part of the Christmas story and examine the way we look at people, uh, the way we look at ourselves, and, and, and remember that what's important to God is reaching out to those who are in need, to those who need strength, to those who need encouragement, um, to the shepherds in our life. So thank you for this untold story and help us uh, to, uh, to adapt the politics of God in our lives. Father, thank you for uh, your, your grace and your love. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.